Welcome to the Deep Prince Movies Podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deep Prince Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dylan Southern and Will Lovelace, the co-directors of the fantastic documentary Meet Me in the Bathroom, based upon the best-selling book by Lizzie Goodman, detailing the rise of the early 2000s New York indie scene, featuring The Strokes, Interpol, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, TV on the radio, Moldy Peaches. I'm going to stop. It's a great documentary. I love the book. I loved most of the scene, apart from the clothes. And it was great to talk to them. They've made the fantastic LCD sound system documentary, Shut Up and Play the Hits. And Aziz Ansari special, Buried Alive. And I should let you guys know, this is a Meet Me in the Bathroom two-part special. So in this episode, we have Will and Dylan. And on the next episode, it's me and Lizzie Goodman talking for one hour it's one of those kind of two friends just having a conversation more than a interview i'd say and we go into it about the music the bands each of us discovering music and i talk about when i was trying to wear american apparel outfits in the early 2000s and it didn't end well so yeah that's a two-parter, but first, here is me, Will, and Dylan. So I was thinking when I first heard there's going to be a Meet Me in the Bathroom film, my first thought was, how do you condense 600 pages, 200 interviews, lots of gossip, lots of unreliable narrators as well. Lots of people have different memories and recollection of events. So how was your attempt to condense this into a two-hour movie? It's tricky. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we both love the book. It's a brilliant book. And particularly the first part of the book was the bit we were most interested in. And, you know, I think straight away we sort of thought that's the thing. We'd like to make a film about those first few years where I think you sort of described it as the, or- the origin story, Dylan. Where that felt like the most interesting part of it, really. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you say, like the book's like 650 pages long it covers 11 years it's you know expansive and forensic and it really gets into it and it does all the things that a great oral history book can do and I think our perspective on it was well we can't go that in depth and we can't kind of get as granular as Lizzie's book does but what we can do is create a kind of time capsule that gives you a sense of place and time and for us those first three years were were the most interesting it was it was kind of you know that aspect of what are the serendipitous things that happen to make people connect and find their people. And also what are the external forces that, that mean that a scene like this could suddenly emerge 
in a place and in a time the way that the way that it did. And how did you pick which bands and stories you're going to include? Because obviously you got to include like the heavy hitters like Interpol Strokes, yeah, yeah, yes. But I like that you also featured Liars and Anita and Moldy Peaches. How is it picking out who to include and what stories of their journey to include? I mean, the process was really, um, you know, well, starting with the the idea that it was a scene kind of always felt to us a bit of a misnomer because all of the bands had their own kind of different scenes within scenes going on. So whether that be Moldy Peaches at Sidewalk Cafe with the anti-folk scene, or when you look at the Strokes and Interpol, aesthetically, they're poles apart, Um you know, and then you look at yeah, yeah, yeahs and the stuff that's going on in Brooklyn is much more art rock. And then James and DFA and the LCD is that kind of like coming together of dance music and rock music. So we were always keen that there'd be, you know, enough diversity in the acts that we looked at and that by looking at them, we could kind of show some of the satellite bands around them. We were never going to be able to cover everything and everybody, but we chose those ones specifically because you know, it, it showed a diversity of different things happening. I think it's very much an invention of the music press that that it that it's kind of this scene. It's not like they're all hanging out together. You know, it wasn't like Julian and Karen are hanging out in a bar every week. It, 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 they kind of like had their success successes and emerged separately. But I think we kind of like you know the music press put this label, the New York scene, onto it. Also, yeah, I think it was mainly just. From a from the point of view of having variety in the film, it was choosing bands, you know, that were the big ones that people have, you know, recognized, but that also allowed us to access different aspects of what was happening uh in New York. And then I think from a from a narrative point of view, we tried to look for where there was a kind of coming of age story. Um, whether that's Karen being this shy girl from outside of the city coming in and discovering this new world. And then almost creating an alter ego, and you know what that what what that then means for her in terms of taking that to its extreme, or whether it's James who kind of has this coming of age moment by accident later in life. Um, we we're always trying to look for something universal that you could kind of hook onto, so it wasn't just you know a potted history of the bands. There's there's something to kind of grab onto. And I was saying I love the mini history of can that you just stuck in the middle of a movie was it hard not to go down all these little mini rabbit holes during the movie that that was i mean we love that bit uh james's uh yeah mini history of can but it, it, it was a tough thing there was lots of moments like that where we'd love to have dived deeper into other you know other bands other other parts of it you know uh, as dan was just talking there we were we were thinking about when we first started doing it in the book, Jonathan fire eaters is a massive influence on lots of these bands. And we weren't yeah. able to include, include him because we sort of started a little bit later than that. Yeah. So it was lots of occasions when it was really tough to sort of decide exactly who, who was featured and who wasn't featured, but we always felt that the book acts as a really, you know, this is a companion piece to the book. And if you want to read about that stuff, that's, that's there in Lizzie's book. Yeah, I mean, we had a we had like a four and a half hour edit at one point, and um, you know, didn't want to bore people to death. So, so we got, we're kind of the process of getting that down to what it is today 
involved cutting away loads of bits that we really loved but just to you know it it, it kind of had to fit an acceptable length for a, for a, for a music documentary one of the things that was really fun and salacious in the book was a lot of uh, bands talking about each other a lot of the gossip one of the big pull quotes that kind of came out from pitchfork around the time was everyone thinks ryan adams a dick he turned some of the Strokes members onto heroin and things like that. So I was wondering, as a documentary, how was it tackling the kind of gossipy elements of the book and people telling tales on each other? Um, I, I, it's a necessary part of it, I think, because, um, you know, particularly the, in the case of Brian Adams, he did have such an impact on the Strokes and the sort of evidence was there in the in the archive of, of you know, where that influence led them, particularly that kind of gruesome Courtney Love 24 hours sequence, you know, that there was a sort of thing about his relationship with the Strokes that felt slightly predatory. And, um, you know, it, it was backed up in the interviews and it was backed up in, in the behaviour. So I think we were all for going into that side of things as long as it kind of like made sense to the narrative. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a great streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from iconic directors to emerging auteurs There is always something new to discover. With Mubi, every film is handpicked. And with that said, I want to give you three of my favorites from the Mubi UK catalog. Oh, I love this movie. Mustang from Turkey. 2015 about a group of sisters living together and when one of them has an arranged marriage set up they begin to rebel stunning movie and an incredible score by the great warren ellis who you may know from the dirty free or his work with nick cave that's number one. Oh. They've got the Peter Strickland movies. Okay, confession. I interviewed Peter Strickland for the podcast, and it's the only podcast, Touchwood, where my podcast equipment failed. It was my first time using portable pod equipment. And let's just say the I may have pressed the wrong button. That wasn't the record button. So I'm paying it back. I'm going to give shout-outs to Peter Strickland on all his movies for the next episodes number one the duke of burgundy what a beautiful movie what a beautiful weird movie it's so hard to pitch it's kind of just beautiful and nightmarish a sadomasochistic fantasy if that doesn't sell it nothing will there we go and number three my pick is holy spider by ali abassi I saw this at the film festival last year, London Film Festival that is, and it was fantastic. And it's the true story of a serial killer in Iran who was killing prostitutes and 
a journalist who helped bring him to justice. But it's not that simple. I urge you to check that out. And you can watch all of these for free if you go to movie.com slash deeper into movies for 30 days free of awesome movies movie.com slash deeper into movies searching for footage for i remember you saying something crazy that you saw a photo of someone with a camcorder and then you were trying to identify who the person was with the camcorder and what was on his tapes and things like that how was it digging through all the archives and pulling out all this amazing footage yeah i mean it, it was a challenge for sure we we started off with an idea of the types of the type of footage that we we hoped existed we, we assumed existed but um you don't quite know what that is until you start looking for it and we sort of this was all during lockdown so we were sort of stuck in our in our homes uh as was everyone else who had filmed or photographed the bands or interviewed them which was as we are now exactly as we are right now uh uh, which was sort of helpful um but you know because people had time to look through boxes of videotapes and stuff but we 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 sort of discovered by that we had to really dive deep into it so if you saw a photograph and in the back of that photograph there's another photographer or uh, someone holding a video camera we tried to identify who that person was or speak to people who might have been at that show and see if they could identify who that was and then contact them that way and the same with with journalists we would just read every interview that had taken place of any of the characters or any of the characters around the ones in our film and reached out to those people to see if we could get their tapes so it was a kind of ongoing uh never-ending search really but it was also a constant reminder of how different the time was 20 years ago because you know if if we were making an archive documentary about an artist from today Mm -hmm. we'd have the opposite problem in that we'd have like so much archive it was impossible to go through it all because everyone's filming everything on their phones and stuff so you know, the fun thing about this and also sometimes the frustrating thing was that, you know, very few people were taking cameras out or, you know, that friends of the bands might have a DV camera. And, you know, it was our job to try and source as much of that kind of stuff as possible from the time. And that, as Will said, that involved a lot of detective work, like going on message boards from 2000, 1999, you know, that that period and kind of finding someone's name who seemed to be a big part of the scene and then trying to figure out who they were in the online world today and then, you know, following different leads that different people sent us on. So, I mean, it was a good two and a half, three years of of research for, for, for archive. And it wasn't like we had it all and then started the edit. We had virtually nothing and started the edit. And then during that edit process, stuff would come in as we were going, sometimes at the 11th hour. So it was a really, you know, you know, we knew what story we wanted to tell. We'd written it beforehand, but at points we were beholden to, to what actually existed out there in the world, what had actually been captured. 
I'm obsessed with Courtney Love Strokes MTV Takeover. How long have you seen the whole thing? What is it like? It's been a lot of it. It's um, it's as sort of it's sort of the bit that we show is a distilled. You know, it's as grim as that, and we've kind of shown, shown, you know. How long enough. was it? Was it twenty four hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah twenty four hours, and and you know, people popping into the studio all, all throughout the day and night, and yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bleak. Okay, <laughs> I'm seeing a two part screening in Deeper into Movies Future. That sounds cool. I think so. Deal. And one of the interesting things you said, you use a lot of the audio interviews from the time they recorded from journalists and stuff, which is really cool because you have them talking at the present moment when they're experiencing it and not in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, that was really important because, you know, most music documentaries or certainly, you know, majority of them, you end up with the sort of talking heads looking retrospectively back about, you know, how great the past was and we we sort of didn't want to do that um you know we, we wanted to kind of try and immerse the audience in that time so yeah i mean we would uh, same process with like finding other archive we, we would like contact journalists you know uh, one occasion will saw like this mini d uh, this mini disc recorder in the back of a photograph and we figured out through the photographer who the journalist was and then got in touch with them and we were able to get the recordings so yeah i mean we were just going through mammoth amounts of um interview recordings uh you know from that period and then towards the end of the process we did some audio interviews um where we needed to kind of fill the gaps or to or to create context or to link things together but yeah the the ethos was to try and make this film with as much stuff that actually came from the time and I think the quality of those recordings as well really helps with the sort of, in the same way that the footage is quite scuzzy and like of its time, the quality of those recordings gives it a sort of, makes you feel like you're there as well. We sort of really embrace that, like low res recordings as well. And what was your most difficult scene to tackle? Which section did you labour over the most? If you can pick one. That's a tricky one. Um... Or even what band? There were certain pieces of footage that we didn't know we were going to get, you know, so the first LCD show, um, we knew it had been filmed at first, then we didn't know who had filmed it, then we managed to locate them, and then there's a whole sort of negotiation to to be allowed to use the archive. So right up until the end, we were uncertain whether we were going to be able to definitively show LCD's first ever performance as a band, and thankfully we were. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of a struggle for a good long while and then you know it was it's difficult to say definitively like um what was the toughest area because at points every part of the film was tough because it really was a, a sort of leap of faith to start it um you know and and things came in at different times so it was it was kind of like putting a puzzle together in a way and you know having returning to a difficult bit later only to find out that the next bit suddenly become Difficult, but I mean the whole the editors, Samurai Edwards and Andrew Cross and the producer Vivian Perry and Christian Cargill and like everyone sort of came together as a team and it was really a you know a, a thing built by all of those people together. Um, you know, it's very different to the films that we've made previously in that 
you know, this was, we didn't go out and film anything new. Um, it was a different type of documentary making to the, the, the films that we've made before. And it was a, a real learning process. And let's end by talking about that beautiful opening sequence with the Walt Whitman poem, which you managed to almost create a five minute history of the culture of New York City. That's quite a feat. So talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the intention with that sequence was, you know, New York is a big character in this film. And for people of an artistic persuasion, New York has this kind of allure. It's kind of like a beacon to creative people in some way. And we wanted to kind of open the film with a montage that that sort of had some of that mythology and romanticism and showed you these cultural icons uh, of the past, you know, Andy Warhol and Velvet Underground and, you know, the various kind of people that feature there just to, to build the sense of New York as this sort of mythological place because over the course of the film, we're going to show the reality of that and show, you know, how people come together and, and create a scene. But we also have these kind of external forces, whether that's like the internet and technology or it's the way that the world's changing politically, that kind of have changed the world by the end of the film. Like the thing that fascinated us about this period is it, it's really on the cusp. It's before the world starts accelerating and changing into what it is today. And it's sort of almost a time of innocence. And we 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 kind of wanted to bookend the film in a way that posed the question to the audience, you know, can ever, any of that stuff from the beginning ever be repeated? Do we look at artists and musicians in the same way that we did back then? Or has the world changed so much that if it does happen again, it'll happen in a completely different way that we that we would never expect? Cool. Let's leave it there. Thanks for taking the time. You guys get well soon. Thanks, man. That's a lot. Take care. That was me with Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern. Damn, those guys have got great names. So, yeah, Meet Me in the Bathroom is out now. I urge you to check it out. What a fantastic documentary and time capsule of a sometimes beautiful scene. And if you need more, head over to the next episode and listen to me and the great Lizzie Goodman in conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Telephone Tel Aviv for my beautiful music and you guys for listening. We'll speak soon.